Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Andrew Smith, sculptor and artist, giving a talk entitled, The Very Stones Shall Speak. Mr. Smith's talk was part of the Fine Arts Series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Uh, good morning, and, and thank you for welcoming me to the university today, and thanks for coming out. I hope you all enjoy the lecture and the lunch. I'll talk a little bit today about my work with, uh, especially the work with Clear Creek Abbey, and um, just to give you the first sort of oversight, this is the, the project that I worked on. It's the main portal into the church on the west face of the church. And you can see uh, the watercolor images and things all along the walls uh, of my father's design, Thomas Smith. Um, I wanted to start with, you know, the title of this lecture is The Very Stones Shall Speak, and this is appropriate coming, having recently celebrated Palm Sunday and enjoying now the Easter season. Um, there's... Yeah, uh, the, these dystopian novels have become very popular lately. Uh, the 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 f catching fire and have you guys read that stuff? Um, yeah, of course you do. You can admit it. Uh, the, really, the greatest of these novels was from 1930, Adolphus Huxley's Brave New World. And if you haven't read it, I, I really recommend it. Huxley uh, constructs this futuristic novel. It takes place in the year 673 of R. Ford. He's, uh, <laughs> you know, creating this wonderful parody of a futuristic system based on this oppressive regime. Um, and there's a character in the novel, kind of a minor character, who becomes more important, who grows up in a kind of barbarian situation outside of the city, outside of civilization, and he has one book. He has a tattered, torn up copy of the complete works of Shakespeare. And this character, over the course of the novel, through reading Shakespeare's plays and poetry, he reconstructs Christianity from one source, from Shakespeare, and actually becomes the only practicing Christian in this universe um, based on what he's been able to glean. Now, I like to think that the same thing could be done from looking and understanding uh, the history of Catholic and Christian art. If you can compile enough images, you could theoretically reconstruct what Christianity is. And uh, so that's just one little image I wanted to start with to talk about how I look at sacred imagery, um, the importance of narrative, the importance of really trying to come to grips with a theological truth in any given work of art. Um, so very briefly, this is the lintel up top depicting the 12 apostles, and on the sides below, uh, the Annunciation capitals. Um, and what you see around you on this upper register and the model over there are plaster models um, that I made in preparation for carving the stone. So what I'll go through briefly is a little bit of the process, some of the technical things that are interesting, and also an analysis of the iconography. Um, here's a little close-up of the capitals as they face one another. Gabriel on the left, Our Lady on the right. Um, 
Let's see. Oh, I lost something. Oh, well. Okay, you've all seen um, this great image of Fra Angelico's Annunciation. He did several. Uh, and that was one of the key inspirations to this project. Um, and I'll just scroll through quickly some of the development stages. This is the clay bottle that I made initially um, with drawing on it and a little bit further development here. Um, you can see that being developed. But what I want to do here is talk about the imagery itself. Um, and you can, you can look at the, at the uh, plaster models back there as well. This is the first scene. It's actually on the back of the capital that depicts Gabriel and uh, the creation of Adam and Eve in the garden. Um, God drawing Eve out of Adam's side, Adam sleeping, uh, and the foliage around. So this whole series of, of faces of the capitals will be an attempt to uh, give a condensed history of man's salvation. So the beginning, the creation of man. At the next stage, uh, you have the scene of the expulsion from the garden. You can see it a little better here. The angel with the fiery sword uh, thrusting Adam and Eve out of the garden, the snake kind of coming along with them. Adam, I don't know if you can see, is sort of clutching the apple there. Um, this is, you know, as, as church fathers discussed, the reason why, well, I don't want to make any particular statements, but <laughs> uh, the reason why Christ needs to come into the world and redeem man, Adam and Eve's sin. Um, and the next stage in that history, the history of our salvation, is the foretelling of that event. So we have the prophet Isaiah, and you can tell he's Isaiah because his lips are being purified by the ember from the tabernacle. So the angel comes with the tongs, has the hot coal, purifies the lip of Isaiah so that he can prophesy, and his scroll reads, Ecce vergo concipiat, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a child. So this uh, prophecy of the moment. And then you have the moment itself. You have the Annunciation, which you saw a few slides ago. Gabriel on the left, Mary on the right. And that is what you see as you approach the church, as you walk through the front doors of the church. So that key aspect of meditation. <clears throat> um, on the next capital, uh, on the very right-hand side, you're seeing the image of Mary, and this is the face. And the, the narrative continues with Joseph, the dream of St. Joseph, his particular enunciation, uh, or the, the particular enunciation to Joseph. And he has the tools of his trade, um, the tongs and the hammer that might be on his wall in his carpenter shop, but also foreshadowing the instruments of the passion. Um, and then the, the flowering rod, uh, it's, an, it's a story that comes through tradition, not through the scripture, but Joseph, uh, there was a miracle in which Joseph's staff flowered, and that was the sign that he was uh, to be the husband of Our Lady. <clears throat> and um, following the next scene, the, the visitation, Mary and Elizabeth, and Zachariah up in the corner, kind of looking on, um, a little bit baffled and unable to speak. And finally, 
parallel to the scene of creation is the nativity of Christ. So Christ down here, Mary, Joseph, animals, all that fun stuff. Um, this image of Joseph I, I particularly really enjoy. There's always a lot of study. You have to go in and study the tradition of these images. And the monks commissioning this work wanted me to especially look at French sources because their origins, the origins of their monastery, are in France. And I found this terrific image that I had never seen before, the image of Joseph rending his stockings. And there's a cathedral, a sort of pilgrimage shrine in Paris that holds the relics of St. Joseph's stockings. And uh, these relics have been venerated since the Middle Ages. Um, and the tradition says that there were no swaddling clothes for the infant Christ at the moment of the nativity. And so Joseph, as a devoted father, removed his own stockings and rendered them into um, swaddling clothing. So that's the image that's taking place here. You can see one of his feet is bare, the other still has it. Um, and it's nice because everywhere else he's just sleeping. And uh, Joseph ought to be awake every once in a while, I suppose. Um, any, any quick questions on that, just the imagery? I think this is a small enough crowd. If anybody wants to pop in, um, that's fine. But uh, moving forward then, so a little bit about the, about the process. I made the clay models. From that, I made a mold and took the plaster models that you see displayed here. And the next step was actually carving them into stone. And so here you can see the uh, workshop that I used out there in Oklahoma. Um, and those slabs of Batesville marble. I'll talk a little bit about the stone that we used later on. Uh, Here's a little quick word about the technical aspect. A lot of people ask me about this. Um, this is called the pointing machine. Uh, and what you can see, I'll kind of go back and forth between these two. This is the stone, that's the plaster. And what you can see, do you see those three bolts on the stone? Those are kind of, they were just sort of super glued onto the stone. And those three points, correspond to three identical points on the plaster model. Um, and then you have this contraption. It's a frame of metal where the uh, long pieces of metal fit into those three points. And you can take that frame and put it on either the stone or the plaster. And what you have is a third arm, um, the one with all the knobs and things. And that third arm is what allows you to take a point of reference from the plaster model and then apply that same, find that same point in space on an XYZ axis on your stone. So you can take a measurement, say you want to know the nose of St. Joseph, you mark where that is with this little tool, and then you retract the tool so it comes up and you apply it to the stone and you can use that little pointer to find the exact same point again in, in space. Does that make any sense? Yes, sir. So as you're transferring it, um, are you trying to make it absolutely identical, or do you let the stone inform at all? Sure. That's a good question. And yes, the stone does inform it. Modeling in clay is a different process than sculpting in stone. Um, and 
the tool allows you to really understand where, uh, where your model is. And now this is, because this is a complicated project, it's, um, it's in, it, it's not a very simple relief carved on. There's undercuts, all of these things. Um, we could talk more about the romantic notions that this perhaps breaks. Uh, people like to say, well, Michelangelo never measured anything. He worked straight from hand. And really, he, he is the exception who proves the rule, I think. Um, all the, the sort of famous 20th century stone sculptors rejected the idea of making models and copying them. They wanted to you know, experience the stone firsthand in a very vigorous way. Um, but when you look at modern stone sculpture done in that method, it's always very simple. It's never complex. Um, they're doing, they're, you know, investigating the nature of spheres or very, I don't want to say crude or, or diminish them, but they're not, they're not doing complicated sculpture. Um, Michelangelo was, but he was just better than everybody else. He's, you just can't put him on the same playing field as a little guy like me. That reminds people, you know, I, w I was working kind of exposed, I was working on the face of the building for a lot of this project, and a lot of laymen come and visit the monastery, they offer retreats and things, and so it was a kind of interesting series of people approaching me, talking about the work for a few minutes, and two out of three these people who came up would start with the same remark. They would say, oh my goodness, another Michelangelo. And I would wince. Uh, I would just always have this image of Michelangelo floating up there in heaven, kind of cringing when people compared me to him. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, so... If, if you start with this, so anyway, that's just a little bit of the process, um, and you'll see that again in a future slide. I want to keep moving so we don't run out of time. But here you can actually get a sense of the number of measurements taken. Those little colored dots are points that I took. And what you do is you find out, you know, you start with, um, say, 15 red dots and just get rid of stone because you need to kind of efficiently move the stone out of the way. <clears throat> And so those initial points will kind of help you whittle down things. And then from there, depending on the complexity, I would take a point about every square centimeter or so. And it just, it really does help if you have, if you know what you want to do and you know that you've already worked out the proportions of the arm and the things, all of that stuff in clay where you can change and, and revise. Whereas with the stone, of course, you can't have that freedom. So that gives you a little sense. But also, there's plenty of drawing that goes in as well, kind of drawing those little feathers once you have their basic parameters established, things like that. Um, so the, the carving of those, those took about, I think, eight months for the two capitals. And then they were installed into the face of the building. Um, <clears throat> and that's the wonderful thing about working with a project like this that's real. That stone is really bearing weight. It's part of the building. It's not going anywhere. Um, 
And so at that stage of construction, I had just finished the capitals and the uh, masons were able to install them into the church. I'll talk for a minute about that. Here's just another view. Um, the next stage was design and development for the 12 apostles. The, the, after completing the capitals, the abbot asked me to take on the next project of the apostles. Um, and so, again, beginning with a life-size drawing, I'm no draftsman, I, I can't stand it, but it's important to sort of have an opportunity to really study, to really lay down ideas, to talk with the client. Um, and so, in this phase, uh, I was reading a lot in the scriptures, in these great sources and things like the Golden Legend that come down from the Middle Ages um, of popular traditions associated with the apostles. I couldn't name all 12 before I started this project, so it took a little bit of study. Um, and we'll go into that a little bit as well. Let's see, just another shot of the drawing there. Um, okay, so one neat aspect of the project. This was my first stone carving project of any, any significance. So it was neat for me to learn along the process. And um, one of the big problems was finding stone. The stone industry in the United States has diminished tremendously um, because there's really only a few, there's some active limestone quarries in southern Indiana that are still producing a lot of stone. Uh, there's some granite and things in Vermont and Wisconsin and places, but it's a completely diminished landscape from what existed. Most of our stone for countertops and things is coming from China now, and that's a real problem uh, because uh, um, Chinese quarries are very dangerous. Uh, lots of people die every year extracting stone in China to send to the U.S., and that's frustrating to me from a just ethical level. <coughs> But the other problem in the Midwest, out here in Arkansas and Missouri, um, is the cold storage industry. There was, a, there was an active quarry in Carthage, Missouri in the 19th and early 20th century. Um, but in the 1950s, they stopped quarrying stone and started using their holes in the ground for storing Thanksgiving turkeys. And it's a good way to get a naturally cool environment and efficiently, you know, produce cold storage. Um, but as good American businessmen, they decided to start buying up all the other quarries within a 500 mile radius and shutting them down so that nobody could compete in the cold storage business. So that kind of business practice was devastating to the whole stone industry of that whole region. Um, <clears throat> And as I investigated this, I found finally, through uh, really through a miracle, this organization in Batesville, Arkansas. Um, and that had happened to them. Their quarry had been bought and shut down. But fortunately, within the last generation, a new Arkansas family was able to buy that quarry back and reopen it and start extracting stone again. Um, <clears throat> And it's a, it's a marvelous stone. It's got a long history in that region of being a construction material. 
If you've, you've all probably seen Indiana limestone somewhere or another, it's a very prominently used stone. There's probably plenty on campus. Um, <clears throat> and it's good building stone, but it's not uh, incredibly durable. It's actually, you know, a very light limestone, um, whereas Batesville is very dense. It is a limestone, but it's so dense that it is treated by the industry as a marble. Um, it's also very, it's free of fossils. There's very few fossils and things like that which get in the way of sculpture. Um, so anyway, this is a shot of the quarry. Uh, the gentleman from the family who was showing us around and taking us down through the stones. I wonder what else I have here. Um, he was terrific. Uh, he drove us all over the quarry, took us to, showed us the different stones that we had. And I said, you know, at the end of our visit, you guys really need to get your website back you know, into shape. You need a better website. You need to promote yourselves more. And um, he said, yeah, Mr. Smith, I know that. I know, but uh, Granny McBride, she says that the internet's the devil. <laughs> so we just can't really do anything right now, but don't worry, she's really old and she's getting ready to die. <laughs> so sure enough, a few years later, Granny McBride died and they have a state-of-the-art website. So, uh, but it really was a great sort of family business and glad to see that kind of thing happening again. So there he is up on the right, showing us around. Um, and here we have the stone actually arriving um, on site. And actually, the, the facilities in Batesville, they had the tools to extract these big pieces, but they, their machinery was not adequate to, um, to do the finished cutting on these big pieces of stone. They were used to more uh, smaller stones. So we had to extract the stone from the quarry in Batesville, put it on a truck and send it to southern Indiana, and the folks there did this carving, what you can see here, um, preparing the stone for the work that I would do. And uh, they were great too because um, they undertook to do the work and they told me at the end of it that they'll never do it again because this stone, as I said, is so much denser than Indiana limestone that I think they uh, really wore down their saws and things like that on this material. So um, they said, if you, give, if you come again, we're gonna price this differently. <laughs> so anyway, here you can see actually, before the rest of the brickwork comes up, how these pieces are stacked. Um, the lintel that I would be carving right above those capitals, and then the uh, one, two, three more stones to create the, um, the tympanum. Uh, and again, we, had, we couldn't get one tall, you know, 10 foot tall slab of stone because of the nature of the geology. The Batesville stone is very dense, but its drawback is that this is about as big of a piece you can get. Um, with Indiana limestone, you can get a 18 foot tall piece if you wanted to. Um, and stone has to be laid according to its bedding. It has to be used in masonry the same way that it formed through its layers of stratification, if you're dealing with a sedimentary stone like limestone. 
Um, so here we are working on the project. Uh, we set up a scaffold. I'd just climb up there and work away. Um, keep moving here. Again, showing this sort of system of taking points, taking measurements from the plaster model. Then I would pick up that machine. And again, you can see those, those moments there where you fit in the machine and find, find, the, uh, find the point in space that you're looking for. Um, a little bit of working. All right, so the 12 apostles, we're going to start actually from the right and move our way to the left. And you can see Linus made a very nice spread over in the corner that you can take a look at. Um, but with these apostles, I had sort of two goals in mind. One, to depict each apostle individually as a saint, as someone that you can have a devotion to. My name's Andrew. I want to have a devotion to the Apostle Andrew. I want him to be a unique individual. And that's one departure that I really took from the medieval tradition. If you look, especially at the earliest medieval tympanums, you're going to find 12 dudes that all kind of look the same. They're all apostleish. They have cups or they have some symbol of their apostleship, but they're not individuals. And I talked extensively with the abbot. How much do you want this to reflect the history of Romanesque sculpture? How much do you want this to incorporate more modern ideas about devotion? And so we went with the route of really individualizing each apostle, each saint, and creating a meditation for that. And then the other goal is that they all have to create one composition. They have to interact with one another in the right way and create broader narratives at the same time. So, in this set, on the far right, we have uh, Jude, who replaces Judas um, after, after the crucifixion. Then you have Philip leading Nathaniel to Christ. Um, eventually, there will be a carving of Christ in that semicircular tympanum. And so, when that's done, um, Philip will be pointing up at Christ, leading Nathaniel to him. And so this comes from the Gospels uh, that Philip is called, and then he calls his friend Nathaniel. He finds him under the fig bush um, and brings him to Christ. Christ says, here is a true Israelite. There is no guile in him. Um, so here he is. Now, Another element, each apostle who was martyred, all, all the apostles other than St. John the Evangelist were, uh, received martyrdom. And so a sign of their martyrdom is depicted uh, with each apostle. So on the right, just hanging from where that building is, you can see a gambrel. And a gambrel is something I learned about in Oklahoma where people like to uh, slaughter their own animals for meat. And what you do is you get a deer or you get a pig or whatever it is, and you hang up their, the animal upside down by certain tendons in the leg, and then that makes it easier to flay that animal after it's dead. Uh, Nathaniel or Bartholomew was flayed alive, and so that image there works as a foreshadowing of his own martyrdom. Um, <clears throat> and so furthermore, Philip uh, leading the way to Christ his martyrdom, 
How is it depicted? Actually, he was, he was crucified, so he's holding the staff, mentioning his crucifixion. And again, we'll, we'll move through a little quicker. Um, Jude, looking at the dice, he was chosen by lot among two possible apostles. And uh, so that's just him kind of contemplating the throw of the dice and realizing the responsibility that comes with apostleship um, and then clutching the spear, the implement of his martyrdom. And moving along, um, Matthew, the evangelist, holding his book, but also kicking away a sack of gold coins, rejecting his former career as a tax collector for the Romans, rejecting his greed, rejecting all that. So he's literally sort of pushing that sack of coins over the edge of the lintel as if it might fall down. Um, in the center, James the Greater, James the Apostle, uh, as, as pilgrim, uh, he's associated with the great pilgrimage to Santiago, and so he's holding his staff for walking his gourd for storing water, and then also the sword, the implement of his martyrdom, but also the sign of him. James is a military saint. If you're involved in um, reconquering Spain from the Muslims, then you want to pray to St. James because he will come and help you. Um, let's see. And here, the center of the lintel, uh, you have John, again, sort of adoring Christ. John is the only one who will interact with his eyes with the figure of Christ above, uh, his representing his closeness to Christ, and him holding the goblet, the sign of his devotion to the Eucharist in the form of, of the wine. Um, Next, we have Peter and Andrew, brothers. Also, James, James and John were brothers, too, the sons of thunder. So they're depicted together. Andrew and, and Peter, um, keys, fishing net, all that fun stuff. The, the rooster that crows. I want to talk for a minute about the heavenly Jerusalem. Above all the apostles, they're each in their own little niche. And uh, these buildings were carved depicting heaven, heaven as architecture, as a sort of city. Um, and so all the central buildings were taken from Romanesque architectural examples that inspired the construction of the monastery. So that was an interesting little element. Um, moving here. And any, any one of these you want to go back to later is fine, too. A uh, little close up, that fun little rooster. I like animals. Um, okay, this one's fun. Uh, Thomas, this is a great opportunity for me. Uh, I, I took this as a moment to honor my father, um, who's named Thomas, and kind of depict his portrait in the lintel of the church that he had designed. And so uh, he's sort of portrayed there. Thomas the saint is also the patron saint of architecture um, for a couple of reasons. And he is shown with his carpenter's square measuring the trueness of a right angle of a piece of stone. Um, and so that carpenter's square, his investigation into the truth of things, into the, so the reality, famously makes him the doubting Thomas. But that's you know, not altogether a bad thing. He needs to test reality. He needs to understand the truth. And so here he is investigating um, 
If we have time at the end, I'll tell you the other story of Thomas that makes him a patron of architects. But for now, I'll keep moving. Uh, and finally, this is the last group. This is the group of, I like to call them the disputants. So you have James the Lesser in the center, and on this side, Simon the Apostle, and on that side, Jude. Wait, have I done that right? I got my apostles mixed up. Okay, Simon and Jude, they're together. They, they're buried together, and there's always been a um, devotion to Simon and Jude. And then James the Less stuck in between them. And I wanted to, you want to have some sense of humor as, as an artist, but you want to do it in the right way. So the idea here was you need a little bit of comic relief. And the idea I had was to have Simon and Jude separated with this poor guy in the middle who's trying to get his work done, and he's got these loudmouth brothers of his sort of shouting at one another, arguing about some theological point. So that was kind of the, the joke. Um, and this one is actually displayed in the model over there, so you can get a better sense of it looking up close. Uh, now, this is the way that God works sometimes. It's terrific, because I just thought I was being snarky and kind of coming up with something clever. Um, but my little brother, who, who's a theologian, he's a Dominican friar, actually, he came and visited and saw this, and he said, Andrew, it's perfect. And I said, oh, what? What do you mean? Um, pointed me to a moment in the Acts of the Apostles where all the apostles have gathered together for a council, and they have to determine this, this pressing question, whether converts to Christianity need to undergo all of the Jewish practices, the Jewish dietary rules, circumcision, all of these things. And all the apostles spend hours shouting at one another, arguing about this issue. Um, and James the Less remains silent until the very end, until after hours of these guys yelling at one another, he finally stands up and addresses the community for five minutes and convinces everybody of his position. So in a way, uh, <coughs> what I intended just as something humorous really can be interpreted as, as somewhat profound or somewhat incorporated. So th there is this idea that uh, any true interpretation is, or any, any, any true interpretation is a valid one, not only the interpretations that the artist intended. Um, and that's a, kind of a beautiful mystery in a way. Um, so that's, that's them, that's the disputants. Oh, a couple close-ups there. And here again, all the apostles kind of spread out together. These are, these are kind of hard to see. Um, and that's that. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.